Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Welcome from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our podcast. On this episode, we have Rob Zuber, CTO from CircleCI. A lot of the projects we work on implement CircleCI, so we were super excited to speak to Rob. We talked to him about his background and how he became part of CircleCI through an acquisition. We also get into one of his favorite topics, language, particularly the words that are used in projects and how important they are for workflow. We also discuss domain-driven design, or the idea that when creating a layer of functionality to keep it bounded within its domain so other layers don't creep into it. And finally, we go over a really important topic today around DevOps for distributed systems. This was an engineering-heavy episode that was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this one. But before we get to the conversation, here is a word from our sponsor, Blockchain Training Conference that I'm really excited about. What if there was an educational industry conference where all of the sessions were focused on teaching you something instead of selling you something? There is, and it's Blockchain Training Conference 2019. It's going to be hosted August 28th to the 30th in Denver, Colorado. BTC 2019 offers every attendee the chance to leave certified and confident in their understanding of blockchain technology. Move past the jargon to gain a robust understanding of blockchain and cryptocurrencies with masterclasses taught by industry luminaries like Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Rene Picard, Jameson Lopp, Pamela Morgan, and many others. Register today and learn more at blockchaintraining.org. We also have a coupon code for our listeners that you can use to get a 10% discount for the conference, QuantLayer10. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R and the number 10. Just go to blockchaintraining.org slash attend and hit your buy ticket and put in that coupon code. We will also be at this conference in August. So if you are going to be out there, would love to meet in Meetspace. Hey, everyone. You've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard. And we're also joined by Rob Zuber, who is the Chief Technology Officer at CircleCI. Thank you for joining us today, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, so we'd love to start off with a little about your background and kind of what you did prior to CircleCI. Yeah, happy to cover that. It's a long story, so I'll try to make it as, as quick as possible. Maybe I'll work backwards a little bit. So I, I came into CircleCI through an acquisition. At the time, this was mid-2014, CircleCI was about 20 people, and we were a company of three building a product called Distiller, and it was an iOS, CI, and CD platform. So the Mac OS capabilities that are in CircleCI today are have a long lineage back to that. I can't really claim responsibility for any of the good parts of it at this point, but we had built that. And, and that was myself, along with, with two other folks, one of whom is now the CEO of CircleCI, Jim Rose, the other was with us for a while as an engineering manager, but has, has moved on from CircleCI. That was the sort of the tail end of a different business because this is how startups work, where we had been building a consumer marketplace called Copious. We spent a couple years on that business. We were trying to leverage social, Facebook in particular, 
to drive traffic into a marketplace and see if we could find the mechanics that would really drive growth in a, in a marketplace through social networks. It was a very interesting pursuit, but Facebook at some point in there decided that they weren't as invested in the platform or, or they didn't want to be as invested in the platform, sorry, and they wanted to move into mobile. And that caused some problems for us as a business. And we decided to start looking at other things. We started looking at focusing on mobile ourselves and suddenly realized how terrible tooling was in mobile and went off and pursued building great CI and CD for mobile. And that's how we ended up part of Circle CI. So that's that's all the way back to 2011. Prior to that, a bunch of different startups through you know multiple acquisitions from tiny little companies to some companies that were pretty successful. And that goes all the way back to what I like to refer to as the first dot-com boom or first dot-com bubble back in the late 90s. So a long history of, of multiple little startups, but all ending here. Got it. And so, you know, CircleCI launched 2011, 12-ish. You joined a couple of years later. And so at the time, I'm guessing kind of Ruby and Python apps as monoliths were kind of the world of web development. Not the entire world, but those are kind of like the most popular, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Certainly, if you go back to the founding of CircleCI 2011, like we, we were building this marketplace, we were building a Rails monolith. It was really how I think CircleCI got its lift in the early days was the Rails community, very focused on testing, building monoliths, and not wanting to do CI and CD themselves. And CircleCI sort of hit the market right at that time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was kind of uh, CircleCI, Heroku. There were these companies that kind of serviced that marketplace that have done really, really well. Just really, really great, great market timing and execution. What was the product like at the time when you came on board? Compared to where it is now, I mean, now it's, you know, what applications did it support at the time? Yeah, I think the much has changed, clearly. What I would say about the product at the time was, like I said, coming from this background of a big market of Rails developers, very focused on, on testing, automated testing in many of its forms, the product was very tuned to that, very tuned to the simplicity of getting going, right? So we could basically look at a Rails project and say, this is exactly what you're trying to achieve and, and just get that done. We, you know, we had direct links into Heroku, for example. And there was a very small, I wouldn't, well, to say there was a small ecosystem is probably unfair, but there was a small target ecosystem for CircleCI and very focused on doing all of the pieces of that really effectively for those small organizations. So one of the things that has changed over the course of time since I've been here is really growing with our customers. So we have customers who started out, you know, they were two, three folks working on some business that they didn't know if it was going to succeed or not. One of the founders maybe put in their credit card number, you know, back in 2012. And some of those companies are now public companies, right? right. So, <laughs> yep. and they're still customers of Circle CI. So we had to find ways to grow with them and really extend our capabilities, become able to support more complex environments and architectures as those customers grew. And that's really served us to bring in other customers like them who maybe didn't start out all the way back, but but have joined us for the ride along the way. And so really, you know, maintaining that simplicity to get going, but adding the capability to really grow and extend. And then I, I guess I would say with that, it's not just that people or that organizations grew and their software became more complex, but complex in the ways that is that are necessary to run very large systems. But you know, Docker came along in that time frame. I mean, it's interesting to think about Docker as, as a new thing because so many people are so used to it now. But when CircleCI was started, it just didn't really exist, right? We were using LXC for our own container management. 
which is, you know, kind of was the underpinning of early days of Docker. I think they've sort of separated a bit now. But as a result, people thinking about more microservices, containerized applications, those sorts of things, we've really had to adapt and grow to be supporting the ways that people are building software now, which is much less of the, the Rails monolith world. I mean, people are still doing that, and I think it's right to get out of the gate and find product market fit. But as their organizations grow, as their teams grow, basically the ability to break that down and have more independent pieces, but then be able to combine them all in later stages, that sort of stuff, being able to support that perspective of software development is something we've had to, to grow with. And I'm guessing early on, was it mostly those 20 or so, was that mostly engineering stuff, given kind of the heavy emphasis of, of the product itself on engineering workflow? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when I joined, there wasn't a product management team, which is really interesting because it was engineers solving the problem of engineers. One thing we've yep. learned as we've grown is it was engineers solving the problems of a very specific subset of engineers, right? the, ones that, <laughs> right. the ones that thought and built software exactly as we did at the time. And so the you know a big value add of our product engineering, or, or sorry, not product engineering, product management organization is saying, okay, well, that's true for this small set of engineers, but there's this great big world out there of companies that haven't necessarily started to work in the way that we work or maybe never will. I mean, there's things like SOX compliance that affect how people oh, right. build and deploy software. And we have to be aware of that and be able to provide capabilities. I mean, I mentioned some of our small customers growing up and going public. That changes the way they have to operate, right? And so being able to support them through that transition has been something that, again, going back to your question, moving from just engineers to adding product management, adding sales and customer success, and, and having more direct conversations with a larger spectrum of customers has really enabled us to, to grow. Yep. And I guess along the lines of uh, product management, you know, engineers, I don't mean this in any kind of pejorative way, but engineers can be very opinionated about developer tools and the direction that they need to go. Obviously, different people have different needs for different things, so it's totally understandable. And early customers probably knew what they wanted, and that helped guide product direction. So I guess it sounds like things like Sarbanes-Oxley, that kind of dictated, you know, one type of direction that the product would go. How do you kind of figure out what the right feature is and what you want to focus on next? Yeah, I think it's not super unrelated to most product management organizations. I mean, you're absolutely right. You made a comment about engineers having an opinion about what, you know, what developer tools should look like. And I think we're very fortunate to have a large team of engineers who are care deeply about great software development tools. And that is, it's an input, it's a very large input, both on the, at the high level, as we're starting to think about, you know, a next wave of things that we might work on. And then on, in the day to day, right, like being able to say, okay, I understand this is the direction we're trying to go. This is the problem we're trying to solve. I can apply not just my ability to implement that, but my understanding of what it is that developers are trying to do on a day-to-day -day basis to solve this problem in a way that makes sense and that we can get done in a reasonable amount of time. I mean, the, the kinds of things that you would expect from a, an engineering team on any product is just that extra insight about sort of being the customer that's valuable. But when you look at the bigger picture and say, okay, like what are we going to work on in these in big themes that's not going to be something that an individual engineer or any individual, honestly, in the organization can sort out and say, okay, I know exactly everything that we need to do, right? So the concepts for big themes are, as where I was saying, it's 
what you would expect of, of most product management organizations, but some combination of, you know, what are we hearing from customers? Who is the customer that we really are focused on addressing? What problem of theirs are we trying to solve? And then, you know, what does, what does the overall market look like? How do we position ourselves in that market? How do we separate from, from others? What are we really trying to bring to these customers? And then what can we be doing that, you know, that continues to support that or enhances that um, or, or continues to drive real value to, to our customers, right? And so that, that can be anywhere from very large, meaning areas of the product that we, um, we want to expand into, or it could be very small again on that day to day. Okay. Well, in the, in the scope of that overall theme, you know, we are trying to make some adjustment to, I I don't know, I'm trying to pick a a team at random, which is always hard to do on the fly, but let's say I'm working on monetization and plans and pricing, right? Like how do I do things in a plan structure that makes the most sense for our customers, given the way that they think about this work, right? And that's an interesting example because, you know, if you go all the way back to 2011, 2012, we basically sold capacity for building, right? And now we have a whole set of usage-based pricing and the usage-based pricing is tied to really how expectations have changed over time from our customers, right? More and more using cloud-based compute and cloud-based services and have an expectation of things being usage-based and shifted the way that people think about pricing. And so understanding our customers, understanding how they think, and then doing things that align with how they, you know, how they perceive value drives those kinds of decisions. Yep. That's super interesting because if you think about the timeline, such a short kind of timeline where, you know, back in the monolith era, which, you know, era is not even the right term, but you kind of think about it in terms of an era, even though it wasn't that long ago, that, then it, we saw started seeing a shift to microservices. And I had watched another presentation of yours where you said something along the lines of the monolith never goes away. You just add little services around it. I thought that was really interesting. I don't know necessarily that you meant you were going back to monolith. I don't think that's what that means at all. But I imagine that kind of thinking drives where you think that the company should maybe focus on next, where you're kind of supporting these extra services around the monolith versus everything going in the direction of services. Yeah, I think this is, to be clear, yes, uh, it was not we're going to revert everything back into a monolith, but rather people say, oh, yeah, we've, you know, we've switched to a microservices architecture. And they usually start saying that after they've launched their first service or maybe even once they've created the, the Git repo for the first <laughs> service. right? And, <laughs> and so you have this, this huge amount of your business logic of honestly the core value in your business still represented in that monolith. And, and then you start to build services around it. And there's lots of strategies that people talk about about how to do that, and, and that's less important. But you do end up, as soon as you add the first, you have a different perspective of what it means to, to deploy, right? To change software, to get that software change validated and get it into production in a, in a safe manner. And so that is something that we think a lot about. We think a lot about that, not just in terms of our own software and but in terms of what our customers are trying to do and what they're trying to achieve. And that is actually one of the interesting things about being in the space that we're in is we're building software every day and looking at what is working for us and what's not working or where our tools could be better and saying, oh, you know what, we can't be the only person with this problem, so how can we solve that in a way that's going to support other people who are going through this experience, right? And it's 
it's a weird, as someone responsible for technology, it ends up being kind of a weird justification to say, well, we should do some things that are a little bit bleeding edge because then we can figure out how terrible it is and try to solve <laughs> that problem for our customer, um, which, which is a very strange justification, but sometimes it works out, right? And so we were very early with containers, as I said, using LXC in the core of our system, but moving our stuff on, into deploys of Docker, our Docker images, and then starting to use Kubernetes to manage that, like really understanding how, I guess, software was evolving and many people were using those tools through doing it ourselves gave us insight into how then to better provide capabilities for our customers. And so that kind of simultaneous view is very interesting. Yep. Another great talk that I thought you gave, we'll link, link all this stuff in the show notes. It was titled Words Matter, Ubiquitous Language and Throughput. And mm-hmm. you're kind of highlighting the importance of using particular words and terminology in the software development process. And along those lines, there was this concept of kind of domain-driven design. And this is a new concept to me. I have not read that book. Definitely going to get a copy of it by Eric Evans. Is that the right one? Is that the, Am I looking at the right one? Yeah, so, so there's actually... Um, uh, this is one of my favorite parts of talking about this, but a ubiquitous language is one of the concepts from within domain-driven design. So the umbrella is basically domain-driven design and uh-huh. a bunch of concepts in there. And I actually didn't read the Eric Evans book. I read, I'm going to forget the author, but uh, I think the title of the book was Implementing Domain-Driven Design. And the author's name is, I think, Vaughn Vernon, but I might have the two names backwards. And so... I'm not sure why I chose that particular book over the Eric Evans book, but I think they all suffer a little bit from the same problem, which is that so many new concepts are being introduced that picking the order in which to introduce them is challenging. Mm -hmm. So I guess I would just say definitely read it because the content and the material is very valuable, but you'll just have to accept that some things will be a bit fuzzy as you get through it until it all kind of, you have all the pieces to kind of assemble and Talking about ubiquitous language, both from the, that particular talk was a 20-minute format, and that was barely enough to get through sort of one of the concepts of, of domain-driven design. And I think if I'm thinking of the right talk, I think I gave it again at a different place, so I'm not sure which one you saw, but the intro that gets cut out from the recording was someone walking up on stage and saying, no one has ever succeeded giving a talk about domain-driven design, and then like, here's Rob to try, and I was like, thanks, that's, <laughs> that's, that's really making me excited about this experience. But yeah, I think that the concepts are really valuable, and we've been talking a little bit about systems growing and gaining complexity, and a lot of that complexity is sort of accidental or incidental, like as you grow over time and realize, oh, we called this thing that, but we should have called it this, you know, and then the cognitive load that comes with that, you know, oh, I'm going over into this part of the system where I'm just going to pretend that every time I read this word, I'm actually reading this other word. And one of the other things that I think gets captured in domain-driven design and specifically ties to ubiquitous language or some concepts around it is really building the relationship with stakeholders throughout the business so that you're all using the same language when you're talking about something. So, you know, in our case, it would be, I don't know, like workflows and jobs and tasks and what those things mean. And people kind of use them interchangeably when they're very much not interchangeable if you're inside the system. And doing that in a way where, you know, we've been talking a lot about product management, where you sit down with product management and say, like, I'm going to call something this way down in the database. Is that the right concept in our language Let's kind of iron that out early. And this is not like let's spend months building, like writing documents and doing sort of analysis, but really let's just come to some agreement on these things and test it a little bit before we just 
you know, in each namespace or inside classes, you know, whatever language you happen to be using, before we start calling things random names that just right. made sense at the time, because the overhead of trying to then work in that system really increases later. Yeah, we've seen something similar. I feel like it's one of those kind of shared experiences of every engineer. Especially with consulting where we've had clients or halfway through the project, they decide to change the name of everything. And a lot of that naming is sort of baked into the product already. And they ideally end up replacing some of the old names with new names and vice versa. And so you just end up with confusion across the different teams. Yes, I think that is a very common experience. And it might be, I can't speak to the to the consulting side, although that sounds fascinating at a project level, but definitely evolution over time, right? You end up rebranding, you know, things like one actually really interesting thing I mentioned that Docker basically came along in the time that CircleCI has existed. So back when we had purely capacity-oriented pricing models, the amount of capacity that you had was referred to as containers. Oh, gosh. So if you had one container, it was you could run one job at a time. And if you had five containers, you could have up to five concurrent jobs running effectively, but they were containers. And then you can imagine a few years later, people trying to understand how we were selling them containers, right? They were like, "That's why are you selling me units of Docker? Like, this doesn't really make sense. And so we ended up having to, well, mostly just explain that a lot, but also just try to find ways to talk about these things that made sense. And then in parts of our code internally, we just ended up calling them different things because it just didn't make sense anymore to talk about in that way. And that's it's a simple example, but there are, you know, there are external forces that kind of push you into a position where you have to change the names of things. And so one of the interesting concepts within domain-driven design is this notion of an anti-corruption layer. So really, rather than saying, okay, well, every other variable inside here is going to be referred to as this other thing, which is going to be a nightmare, you basically say, okay, I'm blocking off this part of the system. Often it's because it's external, but it might just be a legacy system within your own overall platform or whatever, and say, this is the translation layer. And from this point over, we refer to everything in this way. And on the other side of that, it's translated into this other. You even have a concept of multiple ubiquitous languages, which might sound weird, but you just read the book, but in different <laughs> systems, you're going to use different language to refer to the same, what is ultimately maybe the same entity out in the world, right? So a simple example where GitHub refers to a repository, we refer to that as a project, not because we don't like the word repository, but because that makes more sense inside of our system, but where we can't go tell GitHub to change how they refer to something, it doesn't make sense. So we just translate that language across that boundary. Yep. And Curious, you know, it seems intuitive to kind of know what domain you're working in. You know, I'm building this thing. It does X, Y, and Z. Well, I think one of the kind of difficult issues to parse is figuring out how to create boundaries around that domain so you can get as specific as possible. So I guess, how would you clarify what your domain is when you're thinking about your domain, I guess? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. I think that one of the most interesting parts of Domain-driven design is actually breaking down your overall domain. So for us, the domain of CI and CD as we offer it into a set of subdomains and thinking about those independently. So I mentioned plans, right? Uh, we have a concept of monetization or plans and payments, you know, but, which is a very important part of our system as a business. Obviously, we care deeply about being able to 
provide value to users and have them pay us for that. And, you know, that pays the bills and allows us to grow the business, right? So no surprises there. But it's not the thing that people come to CircleCI for every day, right? Like, it's a problem that's been solved by many organizations. And we actually use more third-party tools in our monetization domain than we use in the very core of our system, for example, right? So what we have a, a subdomain that we refer to as execution or maybe task execution, right? So once we've broken down a workflow into very specific tasks that need to be executed, there's an entire sort of area around ensuring that we have the right type of compute, right? Whether it's the operating system or the size of the VM or the type of Docker containers that need to be present, that that space is allocated, that it's available and ready so it gets executed as soon as it's there, that we're efficiently running that, collecting the results, all those sorts of things, right? That's a very small piece of our overall domain, but it's a, it's a core, right? And there's terminology, again, that I'm referencing from DDD, where monetization as a whole would be considered generic, right? It's something that is very important, but is offered by many other providers. And so there we could say, oh, well, what can we take off the shelf? I mean, we use Stripe, for example, as our underlying payment mechanism. So, And then we have some layers on top of that that are still third party. Because, again, no one is showing up saying, you know what, I'm really excited about CircleCI because they're really great at charging my credit card. <laughs> right. right? Like, <laughs> they're here because we know how to take their complex workflow, break it down, and really understand what they're trying to achieve and give them tools to make that very easy to do, right? And so the side, they're happy to pay us for that, which is great. But we want to invest our time and energy in the core of that execution domain. And then around that, we have sort of the, the coordination, which is like how the jobs string together and the dependencies and understanding sequences of running things, you know, all, all these things that make our system a CI and CD system, not a credit card charging system. Yep. And additionally, so I guess this kind of presses on the idea of language clarity. How do you kind of get consensus around a word once you've kind of figured out the right word to use for a concept? Because, you know, you people can disagree on what the right word should be often. So I guess my question is mostly around like how you get consensus from, you know, different kind of stakeholders around using a particular word in your common language. Yeah, part of it is probably, I don't know if this is the right expression, but I'll, I'll say picking your battles in a sense that there are words that matter more than others, and those are the ones that permeate your entire stack, right? right? So if there's a concept that we put in front of customers, then that's a place where we want to have a conversation with product, with marketing, right? And truly understand, okay, and how are we going to market with this? What's going to connect with the user? How are they going to understand it in a way that really resonates with them, is clear, separates from other concepts, those sorts of things. And as an engineer, honestly, I should care less about that, right? Like, help me understand how the customer understands it, and then I will be in a better position to implement effectively, to name things that make sense, etc. And then there's a level below that, or a couple levels below that, where there are elements of our system that are important to be able to talk to other engineers and other teams about, but will never reach the user. And those, you know, it's useful for the two teams to have some understanding or multiple teams, depending on what it is. 
but it's not necessarily important to bring the marketing team in to have that conversation, right? So I would say it's really a question of, I was going to say whose domain it is, but that feels like the wrong word. Um, <laughs> but but kind of who the owner is of that word in a sense, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of making this up, and I, but in the sense that, again, if I'm going to market with the description of a product, then I need to be very concerned about how the user sees it. And the engineer is... Less likely, of course, we talked about us having, you know, we're working on engineering tools, but but still the engineer is less likely to have an opinion about what the, the customer in the market is going to, how they're going to understand it. And there's kind of a, a consistency that you're trying to create in your language for customers. And then having that trickle down through your software is the best possible outcome because everyone's talking the same language. And then again, the low level stuff, a couple engineers can kind of just hash it out. Probably doesn't super matter. Yep. Although I guess one area it might matter is with onboarding, because sometimes there's a little bit of uh, mental overload when, you know, a new team member joins and isn't, you know, the language isn't super clear. So maybe that's an instance where that might matter at the kind of engineering level. Absolutely. To be clear, I'm not saying it doesn't matter that they pick a word. It just doesn't matter. But the word that gets chosen, it's mostly, is it is it unique and understandable within our domain? And does it make some kind of sense? I don't know that I would invest hours and weeks picking words for very low-level elements yep. of the system. But on the other hand, I mean, even variable naming ends up causing all kinds of problems. So <laughs> I'm probably I'm going to back down a little bit yep. from that position. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, how you see the competitive landscape. Obviously, there's a good amount of competition in this space. And uh, we're even seeing, you know, some of the what were traditionally repository providers encroaching into doing more CI/CD type stuff. So, how do you look at the competition, and how do you see the landscape changing? Yeah, that's a great question. So, we've uh, obviously been around through a pretty long period of this ever-changing landscape. I would say that we, you know, if you look back to 2011 and the the few years after that, we were part of a cohort of a large group of kind of cloud CI and CD providers, all doing similar things, and many of them have disappeared over the course of our, our lifetime. I think 2017 was kind of a big year where notably a number of players trying to do things similar to what we were doing got swallowed up by other, you know, by other organizations, often for internal tooling or just for the team because it was related to something they were trying to do. So we saw a lot, a lot of change and, and honestly left us a little bit of, of free space to operate and then where we've seen what I would consider to be a different class of products is, you know, you mentioned the source control providers, also the platform as a service providers. Right. You know, AWS has some kind of rudimentary CI and CD capabilities. But if you look at most of them, what you find is that they're trying to do something as an extension to what is the core of their business. Right, like I'm providing a platform, or I'm providing maybe Git services, whatever that might be, and I'm either trying to tie more into my platform, or I'm trying to extend out of that in a way that is, you know, basically using that piece as the central hub and then adding some additional capabilities. And in all of those cases, we see people operating at a what I would describe as a thin kind of integration layer versus yeah. really deep in the core of what we do. And I talked earlier about really 
understanding what it is that you're trying to achieve in CI and CD and providing you capabilities to make that as easy as possible, as reliable as possible, like making sure that it works consistently, that you trust your results, et cetera. And when I look at most of the other folks out there who are doing this as an extension of something else, it's, you know, the, the perspective of CI and CD is, is very high level. Like it's a thing where you run some scripts and then you get some, you know, and there's an outcome. And so I think that, you know, we have depth in, in so many different ways. I mean, eight plus years of doing this, we have a very rich set of capabilities around the core of CI and CD, as well as a team of support engineers who have been doing this for years and help people get things up and running, you know, a deep understanding of our customers and what they're really trying to achieve that I think is very difficult to ignore, I guess. Yep. So it's one thing to kind of, again, string together a few jobs. It's another to really like, oh, I know the piece that I was missing on top of all of that. We also have all of the data from all of those years of work and use that to inform basically how the product functions in the sense of who's trying to do what, what's happening in the ecosystem. And we sit at the center of a ridiculous number of jobs running every day in terms of both a very broad spectrum of uh, platform types, technology stacks, integrations with external systems. So we have a very good insight into how the overall ecosystem is behaving, I guess is the best way that I would describe it, and use that to drive not only our product decisions at a high level, but how the product is actually functioning on a day-to-day basis. And that is where I think we really stand apart. So it's the deep historical understanding along with that kind of perspective that comes out of all the data that we're collecting around or observing around how builds are operating. And, uh, you know, one of the new trends that we've seen is this uh, shift to a lot of, you know, serverless, the idea of serverless. Um, Each of the cloud providers has their own branded solution for that. And it's, it's something that seems like achieves some level of vendor lock-in with a given cloud provider when you shift a lot of your code to their, well, whatever their serverless offering is. How are you looking at, at that specific sort of shift in how code is deployed? I guess there's a, there's a few things. So I talked about how we're in this interesting position of both looking at how we leverage software tools and changes in how people build software and then understanding how our customers are impacted by it. So I guess I would answer in in both ways. I think that one of the things that is important to remember, and and particularly you mentioned vendor lock-in, is that at the end of the day, we are ultimately running software inside of these serverless environments, right? And ideally, the goal of serverless is that I am focusing my time and attention on the business logic, not on the operational capabilities, Right? Does, it, does that make sense, the way that I'm saying that? Yeah, like, absolutely. What I want at the end of the day, and I think this is actually, uh, I've talked about this in microservices, maybe only internally, but in the world where we shift to microservices, more and more people ended up spending more and more of their time investing in those operational characteristics, right? Like when I'm working on a monolith, the HTTP stack is a solved problem, right? Someone figured that out a while ago. How I'm doing logging, right. how I'm doing, you know, communications with, well, I don't have any other services to communicate with. Like A lot of that stuff is solved, and then we switched to microservices. We started to build out microservices, and it took some time for people to define patterns where that stuff was, again, solved. And so a lot of the work was in, okay, I'm starting a new service. 
you know, what's the kind of template? How do I do health checks? Do I need an HTTP stack? Am I going to use some other protocol like Thrift or gRPC? Like there's a lot of overhead in things that honestly aren't driving value for the business. And so we were trying to find ways to get away from that. And I think serverless is one of those ways. Like, okay, we want these small units of work, but let's boil this down into, again, a package of business logic with some really simple interfaces. So going back to the vendor lock-in point, if primarily I have business logic and then I just have effectively deserialization and serialization off the ends of that to tie it into whatever framework I'm using, then I should be able to build that in a way where that element is abstracted, which is also the way that I would want to build software such that I can test the business logic really effectively, right? So my, to kind of go to a slightly different space for a second, back to microservices, my take on services and particularly as the more and more adoption occurs in the world and people's microservice infrastructures become more complex and by complex it's really like number of services that they're deploying. The idea of doing very comprehensive end-to-end testing becomes much and much or much more challenging, right? So what you want in that world is your services to be designed very effectively to be tested on their own and minimize the amount of integration with other systems that's required in order to do effective testing, right? So you want to encapsulate your business logic very effectively and separate it away from the transport to other systems because that allows you to really focus your testing in the smallest possible place, catch the majority of your issues before you do the more expensive, more comprehensive testing or push something into production make sure you have great observability and catch your issues there, right? So there are strategies we're devising, but you want to pull more and more of that logic into a a clean abstraction inside of your service. And I think that applies to serverless as well. So again, you're getting down to a smaller unit of work probably, but being able to effectively test that small unit of work independent of the kind of vendor-provided framework in which it's going to execute is the pattern that I would want to apply anyway. And by doing that, you put yourself actually in a place where the testing is not significantly different from the way that you would test most other code bases in a system like ours today. Got it. So yeah, that makes sense for a microservices environment. Now, recently, especially in the last two years, we have seen the rise of more like small distributed systems, particularly like blockchain systems where testing the actual behavior of the network is an important part of of testing the whole, there's the unit and integration test, but the actual network testing is important as well. Is that something that you are looking at or uh, have an opinion on? Yeah, so this, I think, ties, I'm far from being a blockchain expert, so I I will not try to uh, tell you exactly how this works, but I would say that the pattern is the same, which is with any complex distributed system, the ability to test all of the possible edge cases, ramifications in advance of putting something into production starts to disappear, right? Right. And my take on the evolution of software over the last 20 plus years that I've been working in it is that every time we've done something great, it's been because we accepted that we were never going to eliminate risk and built to handle risk instead. Right. So if you go back to agile development, which is 
probably 20 plus years at this point. It was, you know, we are absolutely going to be wrong about our requirements definition. Like, let's just put that on the table right now and accept that spending nine more months writing documents about our requirements is not the answer to that problem. So let's just work in very small increments and find out as quickly as possible that we're wrong and then adjust, right? And so then CI and CD is a natural sort of follow-on to that, which is integrating is hard. Let's do more of it. Let's do it like it's going to break. So let's do it in the smallest possible amount and break it as quickly as possible. And then continuous deployment, same thing. Let's deploy a very small amount of risk and accept that something might break and be prepared for that and build systems in a way that, that handles that. And so I think the interesting evolutionary point that we're at now, as I mentioned with, with complexity of large number of services is at some point I can't effectively test everything in a confined or constrained environment, right? And and it might be because I have that complexity. It might be because the data in production is just different and I'm never going to be able to replicate all of it, right? The way in which things perform in, and when I talk about production, I'm assuming we're talking about some kind of cloud service or, you know, anything operating in a networked environment, when I put it out there, something is going to be different. And so we're building strategies to deal with that, right? As a software engineering community, which might include canarying, right? And high levels of observability and things like anomaly detection is very popular amongst many different you know, metrics platforms now, right? right? And so basically expecting something could go wrong, right? Not expecting that every change is going to be a failure, but I'm going to make a small change And I'm going to be able to watch that in a way that will tell me if it's behaving differently than its predecessors, right? Not necessarily differently than I told you it was going to behave, because the whole point is I might not be able to predict the kind of failure that's going to happen. But I've put something out, it's interacting in a way that, or it's behaving in a way that shows some unexpected signs. And now I'm going to manage that back, right? And so... That's the, you hear this show up under all kinds of names like Canary Deploys and there's other deployment models, Blue Green, stuff like that, that allow you to manage it. But this notion of testing in production, which used to be a joke about not doing your work and now is actually a reasonable model for dealing with, again, embracing risk versus trying to squash it. And I think that applies to all sort of complex networked environments in a way where you can introduce change with tooling that effectively allows you to manage that risk and manage the possible negative outcomes in a way that reduces the impact to your customers, right? And so to come all the way back to, I think, what was nested in your question somewhere, because there's how do we think about it from our own software and just the space, and then how do we participate in that, or, or is it something that we're working towards? Absolutely, we see that as the extension or the natural progression of validation of software change, testing, whatever expression you want to use for it, that is the heart of what we do as a business. Got it. That makes sense. And I want to uh, shift focus for a minute to uh, a blog uh, post you wrote recently called Predictions for 2018. And then uh, you say, uh, I think we have only begun to scratch the surface on the adoption of DevOps culture in engineering organizations. And then you go on to say, we will continue to see more roles with titles like developer productivity or engineering effectiveness and a closer attention to improving developer impact and velocity through happiness. Now, this stuck out because, uh, you know, even in a small consultancy that I worked in previously, 
it was, you know, about half a dozen of us, but we had one developer that was very focused on making sure that our productivity stayed high by always making sure that infrastructure was sort of uh, kept clean. And for him, it was something that was done on an ongoing basis, but particularly on Fridays. So my follow-up to this was, at what organization size do you see these roles becoming effective as a full-time role? And for a, a smaller organization, what's an appropriate sort of distribution of duties to maintain this developer productivity? Yeah, that's a, those are both great questions. So the size thing is, I don't have a fixed number, but I will say that for us, it's interesting that that, that was my prediction. That was 2018. So we started what we call a platform organization this year, and we separated our engineering team into basically two parts, product engineering and platform engineering. And platform includes teams that we did have, like SRE, security, but it sort of took on some more mandate. And a big part of that was consolidating and focusing our efforts around developer productivity. And so I know that we're 80 now, including that organization. It probably felt late. I would say even when we were 50 or less, it felt necessary and one thing I would call out there is we, you know, because we've been talking about moving from monoliths to microservices and this kind of evolution of application architecture is when you make a decision like that, where you are effectively adding a step function change in the complexity of your system and doing it in a way that is likely to distribute out the complexity, then trying to recapture that and invest in in a specific team or group owning it probably makes a lot of sense. So that was all very vague, but let me try to be a little bit more specific about it. So we talked about, I'm building a microservice because I need to support, I'll just keep using plans, right? I need to support the management of plans. And I am an expert in payment systems and, you know, reconciling the flow of credits and credit cards and all this kind of stuff. But I'm not an expert in, in networks and failure modes and uh, retries and back-off algorithms and all the other things that are important in building a reliable distributed system. So either I and my team need to become experts in that in order to deliver our plans capability, or somebody needs to own that and deliver me some capabilities that are shared, right? And so I think... That is definitely a point at which you want to be thinking about how are we doing things in a way that's going to enable our developers to stay focused on the business logic that is really the core of their domain. And that can be independent of size, right? So interestingly, the the other thing that that I joked about actually as we were starting to build this team is most organizations would have created this team sooner because the first thing that team would do is own their CI and CD tooling. Right, like right. That, that's probably the first developer productivity step that gets taken inside of an organization. Is someone needs to own the build, right? But we're we're Circle CI. Everybody in this company owns the build, so we never had that team. Like if you if you weren't willing to think about the build and make sure that it was good and effective, this might not be the right place for you to work, right? So we kind of didn't end up with that team at the same point that that some other organizations might have. So I think, and then to go to your point of distribution of work, a big part of that is personality driven. I mean, you're talking about a team of six or eight people, right? And I've definitely had a team of 
actually about that size, which was a product organization or, or it was a product company, sorry. So we weren't a consulting firm. And one team member was specifically responsible for the build infrastructure. I mean, this was back before we were part of CircleCI and we weren't using CircleCI. And in fact, we started before CircleCI. So that's probably an important point to call out. But there was, you know, again, in that team of six or eight, there was someone who was, who was doing more than that, you know, owning how we did deployment, how we did like metrics and monitoring of our systems, all those things. But that was a, a decision that we made. And I think that person joined the team when we were four, five people. Like that early, if you have someone who's a good fit, the value will be there, the return will be there. And if you, you know, and I said it's a personality thing, it might be more the case that everybody on the team or a few people on the team have an interest in that and you can split that work up a little bit, you know, into smaller pieces and anyone who's interested can kind of pick up pieces. So it could be the case that rather than carving out specific capacity, I hate that word, but I'll use it anyway, or like assigning specific people to it, that you just have to set the tone at that small size. This matters to all of us. This investment is worth it. And therefore, we're going to put these items of work in our backlog next to the features and functions that we're delivering. And somebody needs to take them. And you know, if that's one person on the team or five people, like all five people on a five-person team, doesn't matter as much as setting the tone that this is actually going to benefit us all and allow us all to be more effective. And in the same way that one person might be less likely to pick up some JavaScript and like really front end stuff, someone else might be less likely to pick up those, you know, operational tooling bits, but it's going to get done. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So probably wrapping up, uh, I should probably wrap up soon here, just coming up on time. So what are some things you're excited about over the next year or two at CircleCI? Wow, it's a, it's a long list. So let me try to pick a couple of interesting things to focus on. So I talked a lot about the, um, or at least a little bit about the knowledge that we have of the ecosystem, and uh, you know through our under, like our visibility into data, our visibility into what people are doing, and really continuing to take that and fold it back into how the product operates is something that excites me. I mean, I for me personally, sitting where I sit, meaning as part of CircleCI in the center of so much software development, is just very cool as an engineer, right? To, to have visibility into that, to see how the world is changing, how software development is changing, and to be supporting that and participating in it. And so using all of that information to help our customers, I mean, as I mentioned, we, we roll it back into the product, but also to help them understand their process better and be able to then get better themselves at delivering software, either through understanding where, where their time is going, understanding how they can optimize their, you know, their own processes in order to get stuff done faster. I mean, we talked a lot about developer productivity, engineering efficiency. Uh, there's lots of words for it. But basically, being an organization, being a product that provides that capability to our customers to allow them to spend more of their time focused on their core business and deliver that value to their customers is really the, that's the thing that gets me here every day excited about doing this job. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M 
at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks. Thanks.